Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, May 1st, 2012, and our special guest is Larry Johnson from the New Media Consortium. Larry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, click my video here just briefly to wave to everybody. I'm not going to do a lot of video. I'm at the uh, at a Kimpton Hotel in San Jose, and just got to love this wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn my video off as well. I'm seeing some slowdown for some people with video. Thanks for being here, Larry. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project all about creating conversations between educators, students, teachers, parents, and the like. We thank Blackboard Collaborate for the use of this room. This is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, 67,000 educators talking about Web 2.0 and social media and education. We're having a lot of fun. Uh, we have a PBS NewsHour at Incubator Project. We have the crowdsourced book. We're really desperately waiting for Chris, our editor, Chris Dawson, to ship out the first chapters. But we had, I think, 130 submissions, and we're so excited to get them going. Anyway, classroom20.com, lots of fun going on this year. Please come visit us. Uh, if you're coming to the ISTE conference, we have so much that takes place there. We have our own little sort of shadow set of events. Starting on Saturday with the All Day Unconference, used to be called EduBloggerCon, is now called Social EdCon. Goes from there to the Bloggers Cafe, uh, ISTE Live. Uh, we're probably in about three weeks, we'll put up the schedule for ISTE Live. If you've never presented at ISTE, or you didn't get accepted to present, or there's something that came up since the presentations were submitted, you can sign up to present. We'll have a place for the presentation. We'll be streaming them live. So anyway, lots of fun. Hope that you'll join us, istiunplugged.com. The Social Learning Summit was on April 21st, 73 sessions. I think we decided there were 13 sessions from 13 countries. This was sponsored by Discovery Education and Classroom 2.0. They're all up at sociallearningsummit.com. All of the recordings are all about social media and Web 2.0 in the classroom. The Future of Libraries Conference, we've just done the call for the advisory board, partners and sponsors. Uh, later this week, we'll be putting up the call for proposals. That's October 3rd through the 5th. Really a great conference on the future of libraries sponsored by San Jose State University. The Global Education Conference has a new sponsor. It's IRN. We're so excited about that. November 12th to 16th, five days, 24 hours a day, hundreds of sessions. Uh, again, um, we hope that you'll join us. That's globaleducationconference.com and library2012.com. And coming up, we're going to do a gaming and education virtual conference and the alternate education conference. These are all free, thanks to our sponsors. Coming up Thursday, Buffy Hamilton and Kristen Fontecario are going to talk about school libraries. What's now, what's next, what's yet to come, their crowdsourced book. Mark Bauerlein joins us um, on the 15th to talk about The Digital Divide, his new book, a sort of a um, pro and con looking at um, all things digital. John Edelson will talk about learning in ePortfolios. Elizabeth Merritt talks about the future of museums on the 24th. I actually met Elizabeth at the uh, New Media 10th year, the Horizon 10 year event in Austin. Thanks to Larry, uh, Brian Alexander as well. Anyway, lots of fun coming up. Uh, just today, Tony Wagner uh, confirmed that he'll come on the show to talk again to talk about his new book on innovate, uh, teaching innovation. If you've missed the show, they are all up and recorded. Richie Norton talked to us about um, uh, resumes are dead. Unfortunately, the email for that was delayed three or four days, so we had a, a light audience. But uh, his book went to number one of the free books on Amazon, and he thinks we may have done it through the email. So it's actually a delightful book. You can read it in half an hour. Very interesting, sort of thinking about how uh, the world of work is changing. Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis talked to us about flattening classrooms. John Hunter and Chris Farina talked to us about fourth grade uh, uh, world peace. Uh, and other fourth grade achievements uh, for their movie that comes out this month on PBS. Anyway, lots more all up in full Illuminate recordings in an MP3 format. Hope you'll find something valuable there. Okay, I'm going to give you permissions now for the whiteboard. To the left you should see uh, some icons. You're looking for the star. The second one down, you double click on that and then click on the map. And do put a shout out in the chat. Let us know where you're participating from. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. New Zealand, Australia. Lovely to have you here. Interesting. Several, three from 
Australia so far. Speaks to the scope of your work, Larry. Yeah, we are wrapping up a project in Australia. We're going to release it in just a couple of weeks. We're going to give you a chance to talk about all of that work. Anyway, we're delighted to have you here wherever you're participating from. And if you're listening to the recording, we sure thank you for doing so. So Larry, you've prepared by creating some slides. I've got lots of great questions for you. But before we start with that, um, I'm very interested in uh, your own personal history and how it's impacted the work that you've done. Wow, that's a wide open question. <laughs> well, you worked, you worked at the university level, right? Yes, I did. I was in higher education for many years. I was also working in community colleges and um, served as community college president. Um, and back in the early days when I was a faculty member, that was when we were just beginning to think about networks. And I was one of those people that would come in on the weekend and pop the ceiling tiles up and run wires down the hall so that we could have those early versions of the networks. But uh, you know, it's uh, been a, an interesting time, uh, the, the, the state of education over the last 30 years, which is kind of my perspective on it. Um, we've had a lot of successes. We've really met some incredible challenges along the way. And one thing that feels very much the same as it did 30 years ago when I was coming in on the weekend to pop those ceiling tiles is, you know, I keep wondering well, how am I going to, you know, cobble together the next thing that looks interesting and fun. Fascinating. Okay, so I'm going to let you drive the slideshow. There are some arrows at the top of the screen, right and the left. Just make sure that follow button is checked up there. There should yep. be a check mark in it. But you can actually move the slides forward. I'll let you do so. I'll ask you to dwell at certain places. Then once we get through the slide deck and have those conversations, we'll come back, do a little bit of uh, additional drilling down, and go to Q&A. OK. And along the way, I just uh, want folks to know I'm pretty comfortable with, with, with following the chat. And so I'll be following the chat in the room. And if people have questions in there, I'll, I'll try and spot them as we go. Uh, but I wanted to start off with a bit of retrospective and give those of you who are on the call a little context for what Steve and I have planned to talk about uh, for most of the time we're going to do. And that is uh, this project called the Horizon Project that we began in 2002 and just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Um, 10 years of looking at anything is a long time. And, and 10 years of looking at emerging technology all over the world has given us some, I think, unique uh, perspectives on things. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. And um, over that time, this slide actually, I'm uh, looking at, I realize it's already out of date because we are just releasing um, actually kind of an, an unpublicized release on this call the results of the 2012 K-12 Horizon Report, which is being published as we speak. Uh, that will take that number to 22 editions. And then we have three other projects that are in the queue. So we're going to be going to 25 editions of the Horizon Report in the next couple of months. Um, and the number of translations as well is going to go up to over 40 because we have another five in the queue. We've been uh, part of this for some time. And the project originally began just looking at higher education. That was the world that we worked in. And really, nobody was uh, talking across sector lines back then, or at least we didn't know anyone that was doing that. Um, and so for the first few years of the project, it was just purely a, a higher education project. And we began publishing their reports uh, in 2004. Before that, it was an internal project, just an environmental scanning project. But four years ago, we began looking at K-12 education. Um, Keith Kruger at COSIN had encouraged us to think about doing a similar project as we did in higher ed for K-12. And it just immediately made sense. And there's been so many 
things that have come out of it. Yeah, Steve, you got your hand up. I have my hand up. So you and I shared a cab in Australia a couple of years ago when I thought you said essentially you might not actually do the K-12 report again. You, you weren't confident you were going to get sponsors. D did that shift dramatically enough that this is something you know you're going to consistently keep doing? Yes, I have to say that, you know, and as Steve notes, we, we put this thing together in the beginning with, uh, with really just passion and, and a dream. There wasn't really any money involved, but the research doesn't cost a lot of money, but it does, it does require some funding to sustain it, particularly as the project's gotten larger. Um, and when Steve and I were both at the VITA conference in Melbourne, we were right in the middle of discussions, and I was very worried that we were going to be able to continue it. But thanks to the generosity of the Hewlett-Packard's Office of Sustainability and Social Innovation, um, we've been able to put a very solid footing under that project, and I feel confident um, that we'll be doing it for the very long term, not just because we have the funding, but also because we've really um, been able to get past the chasm uh, with the K-12 reports and the traditional um, diffusion of innovation curve to the point where people really do anticipate it. It's a piece of work that people use and, and um, want to contribute to, and that is going to sustain it. Um, just as much as the, the generous support of uh, HP as well. So we, we have a good feeling about all three of these uh, global reports. And that's one of the things that came out, uh, Steve, of that was, you know, as we began to, to think about how could we scale the Horizon project, because we were getting a lot of interest in those days, um, we needed to both scale it and also figure out a way to rein it in. And so what we came in on was that we have three Horizon report editions. One is aimed at higher ed, comes out in February. One is aimed at K-12, and comes out in June, late May and June. And one is focused on museums, which for us is a proxy for informal ed, and it comes out in the fall. But we also do um, a number, a growing number, actually, of regional technology outlooks. Um, and these are specialized horizon reports. I mentioned we were just doing one for Australia. The letter will be released on May the 10th at uh, an event in Brisbane that I'm heading down to next week. We just did one in New Zealand in November. We're doing one in Latin America right now. We're about to embark on a big project in Asia. We just wrapped up one in last fall for the UK. And, and you know we're looking at India and Africa. Um, and other parts around the world. We just signed an agreement with Brazil. Those are projects that are typically funded either by a coalition of educational organizations in those countries or the Ministry of Education. And that's the long-term future of the Horizon Project. That is what sustains us and gives us a way to uh, make the project work. Go ahead, Steve. So I know you tell this story a lot, but for those who are, are encountering this for the first time, basically the Horizon reports provide insight in tech, tech, uh, sorry, into technologies that are most likely to make a significant impact across three time horizons. I'm reading from your, from your material. Based on the consensus of the opinions of an advisory board. Right? So you, and, and when you report, you actually report more than just the this, this, the tra those, I think it's six trends. You typically report the other ones that are sort of on the short list. But the goal is to look mm -hmm. at what technologies are going to have an impact in these areas, right? That's right. The process is, uh, is one that we've refined now over many years. But it begins with that group of experts that we call the advisory board. And it's usually 45 or 50. Uh, in the case of the global reports, we try and get them if there are 50 advisors, we want them to be from 20 different countries at least, uh, so that it has a, a large international footprint. But we look for people from journalism, from industry, from education, people that are educational leaders as well as people that are in the trenches, teachers and uh, bloggers, and Steve has served on, on uh, this group uh, a number of times. And essentially what the research is, is we work with those experts to find out what they agree about. What are the most important technologies that are coming down the pike? Um, the way that we frame it is, 
if you were going to focus on just two technologies that are going to be important in the next 12 months, these are technologies that probably lots of schools are already using, and really there's a case to be made that every school ought to be looking at them. What are those? And that's the first adoption horizon. And then we ask a similar question for the period of time that's two to three years. But out two to three years, we're often talking about technologies that are only in a handful of schools, if any. Um, they may be very popular in entertainment or business or other sectors, but not quite in education yet. And then we also look out at a four to five year horizon. And some of those things are actually just being invented as we speak. Uh, we typically look at about 180 to 100 different technologies um, as we start the project. And we still it down to two that we um, publish and highlight within each of those adoption horizons. And along the way, we also look at, uh, we ask our experts to help us think about the, the, uh, the key trends that are going to drive the implementation of these technologies, as well as the obstacles that uh, they're going to have to solve or go around. Uh, to, to help them to be implemented. So that, that's the basic idea of it all. Keep wanting to click the arrow on my laptop here. Now, all of that data that we collect goes into a resource we call the Horizon Project Navigator. And Navigator is an open content, open source database. It lives at navigator.nmc.org. Um, and it has become, over the last five years, the largest repository of information about EdTech projects that we know of anywhere. So thousands of educational technology projects there. Now, one of the, the things that we do to help our advisors all start on the same page is we're very much involved every single day uh, scanning the news, research reports, and, and relevant uh, research to make sure that we're able to to look at five years. And we scan, our list right now is about 700 publications worldwide. They're not all in English. We, we look at Spanish language and, and uh, Portuguese language, German, French, uh, and other languages as well, along with English, to just have a sense of where things are going. And all of that information goes into Navigator as well. Um, so it's a collection of not only the, the 80 to 100 technologies that we're, that we're tracking, but all the news and such that we have uh, been moderating, and, um, and that, that database of, of projects. And all of it is available, uh, yeah, there we go, that's, that's Navigator on the web. Um, and if you click the projects link, Steve, you'll, uh, you'll be able to go to a map and get a sense of what's in there. Now, what we've tried to do with Navigator is to build it into uh, the actual center of everything we do in the Horizon Project. And so, uh, so this is a map of all the projects that we're tracking. And if you zoom in on the map, you'll, the the numbers will disaggregate, so there's you know several hundred in North America and, and so forth. Uh, and when we get ready to do the first draft of the Horizon Report, this is where we go uh, for the initial descriptions of the technologies because they're all fresh in here. Um, the list of readings and uh, and demonstration projects all come out of here. If we can get back to the to the PowerPoint, we've made that super easy now with. Uh, an iPad app, so you can go to Android as well for uh, Galaxy and the other the other uh, tablets that are about to come out. And it provides uh, a nice little collection, and so you can get the top ten news stories every week uh, that are curated out of all of those hundreds of uh, publications that we track. Our researchers in the office pick ten every week that are featured as HZ News. Um, you have a little doorway that takes you into the entire Navigator database from here. Plus, you can you have access to every Horizon report that's ever been published. Uh, 
in every language that they've ever been published. And that's uh, not free, which it could be. We're not for profit, and so we we put it up there as a way to uh, to help fund the project as well. But every penny goes to support the research. So a little plug there. Yes, Steve, go on ahead. So, Larry, beyond kind of uh, brain fun. Of thinking about the future and thinking about these technologies, so who's using that app in really practical ways? We don't have as good a data about that as I wish we did. We know more about it uh, with the higher ed community that that we work with most closely, uh, and it is used primarily for strategic planning. And so as uh, you know, schools and universities are thinking about where do they want to spend the, the technology money they do have. Uh, they very much look at it in, in a couple of different ways. They want to think about what those trends and challenges that we identify mean locally, but they also um, want to, to reflect on and understand the technological uh, developments that we're highlighting in there as well. So it's primarily a, a technology planning tool. Why don't we take a look at what we've just found? Maybe this is a good place to transition to uh, the results for this year. What, what I've done on this slide is I've compared what we came up with um, last year, 2011, with what we've come up with in 2012. And there's some interesting developments here. Cloud computing uh, first came on the scene for the K-12 report in 2010, and it was in the midterm horizon, and then it just blasted to uh, the near term, and I would say that it would be a pretty rare school today that is not um, doing something related to the cloud. Uh, pretty much every teacher I talk to seems to be aware of things that you know, just all sorts of tools that you can that you can use in the cloud. That schools are also using it to to provide offsite storage and all sorts of things. And it's a good example of a technology that we track as it was coming towards schools and also as it was really making its way rapidly into the mainstream. And now it's no longer listed in the 2012 list because it's here. Cloud computing is already here and the Horizon Report is really about things that are still coming. Um, mobiles is one that's been in the near-term horizon for a while, but the darn technology just keeps um, changing all the time. And the thing that has really made it interesting last year and this year, of course, is the uh, emergence of, of the apps as a way to extend the utility of these devices. And then tablets uh, with the iPad kind of leading the way, creating an entirely new category of, of technologies. And um, so in 2012, we see both of those really dominating the near term. And that's really what I'm seeing out in schools as well. You got to come in on that, Steve? Go ahead. Yeah. Sure this is what I do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there were two additional technologies that were in the one year or less short list that you chose not to put in. Well, they, right? were, they were not. It wasn't me. It was the, the experts. It didn't make the final cut. We do a series of, of rankings uh, using a process called the Delphi process. And uh, first we get to a list that Steve's referred to as the short list, which has 12 technologies on it. And then we reduce it to the final set of six. But yes, the, the, the ones that fall off the list are pretty interesting as well. The higher ed report, you actually did, some, you did an editorial bit where you said, even though the group came back with this, we don't think it's realistic. I think it was social reading. How often does that happen? Yeah. That doesn't happen very often, but it's one of the strengths of the Delphi process that we use. And um, when you work with a group of, of, of real experts, they're often out inventing things, I mean, all the time. <laughs> one of the reasons why we want them is because they're so clever and creative. And, and ideas come up, and social reading is a good example. We, uh, it's got such a great name that in the initial ranking, it, it made the cut, and so it became part of the short list. But what we do with the short list to make sure that the ones that get in the report are really valid 
is we take that list and then we go out and we really research it. So we want to make sure, for example, if social reading is going to be something that we're going to say is important, then our expectation is that we're going to find considerable research supporting it. We're going to find news stories about it. We're going to find demonstration projects because very few technologies originate in education. We adopt them from somewhere else. Um, now, that's not universally true. There are some notable exceptions. But in the case of social reading, we, and we realized this is still a concept. It's a great concept, and the notion is, is really compelling, which is why people liked it, was that uh, you know, the students could, could uh, sort of merge their reading assignments with social media so that they could have live, real-time discussions uh, even outside of school. It's a cool idea, but we didn't find anything to support it. So um, as we went back to ask for the final cut, this is part of the process, we, we revealed you know, what, what we had found. In fact, we do that both when we find a lot of interesting stuff, the voters find out about that, but they also find out if we don't find anything. So I know you're going to get to the wiki, but uh, Craig is asking in the chat, oh, I'm sorry. Is, there, is there a link for social reading? And um, my guess is that if, they, if someone were to go to the wiki for the higher ed report, that they would be able, and I'll put the link up here, but I think you're going to show the wiki, that they would be able to find material on that trend, right? Uh, well, they could find the discussions that led to it, and let's see, that would be Horizon. Wasn't really prepared to go here, so give I me put, a I second. put it in there. Oh, okay, good. Um, I'm looking here for uh, research question number two. going to um, put this link in here that is where topics like this come up. Um, and they're topics that are not on our list. And so you, you'll take that link and you'll go to a wiki page for the higher ed report in this case, which um, was the answers that our that our experts had to what key technologies are missing from our list, and so we had things like flipped courses, which is going to make it in next year's report. I'm pretty certain because it's just starting to get very very interesting, um, and things like the Internet of Things, which ultimately did make it in, and massively open online courses, which is going to make it in in the Australian report for the first time. Um, and notions like open badges, and somewhere in this list is um, social reading. I'm not finding it immediately, but that's where that sort of thing appears. And you know, we if it gets voted in um, in that first round of rankings as, as something potentially important, we go we go look at it. Yeah, go ahead. Larry, so how often does a technology take you by surprise? And are there times when a technology you thought was going to really make it big just kind of dies off? Do you have stories of either of those cases? Absolutely. Uh, and anybody that works in these vineyards very long does as well. But one that I would put in the second category is one that, uh, and that's virtual worlds. And we, um, we stumbled onto virtual worlds really very early, ahead of uh, just about anybody else. We started our project when we were working with MacArthur on the social digital media and learning initiative um, in January of 2006. And then in July of 2006, Second Life appeared on the cover of Business Week, and it just kind of got really crazy for two or three years. And lots and lots of people really uh, put a lot of effort into trying to understand that technology. And it looked pretty interesting. Um, and in fact, we uh, had a project that, that, that we used to demonstrate all sorts of interesting dimensions of what was possible to do there. But the um, 
technology didn't advance. It kind of is still today almost exactly where it was then. And people were excited about, this is my editorializing, I think people were very excited about the promise of virtual worlds. And they were willing to live with the reality of virtual worlds for a time um, with the expectation that it was going to get um, to another place where some of the uh, things that, that weren't perfect, and there were quite a few of those, um, might be resolved because, the, again, the, the potential seemed really powerful. Unfortunately, um, for whatever reasons, there weren't competitors entering the marketplace. Uh, London Lab decided to take a different direction, and there hasn't really been anybody else step up. And so the interest clearly began to wane. Um, in 2008 and 9, and now what we're seeing is a classic Gartner hype curve, where Second Life fell all the way down in the trough of disillusionment uh, and lingered there. But now um, there are some notable projects. I, I mentioned the uh, Randall Poe project is one that you know continues to do good work in there. There's some great work from East Carolina University in there. And, and a handful of others that are that are have figured out a way to do some amazing things. But as far as a mainstream technology, um, that one is pretty much falling off our list. Cloud computing is one that came along so strong, so fast um, that we were barely able to write it up <laughs> before it was already upon us. And so, you know, you see both, which is why it's very important. Uh, to, to do the extra homework to make sure that what we're reporting on is is, uh, is real you know, and has and has a, a valid potential. The, the, the good news is for that is that all of the technologies that we've ever published in the report have turned out to be important in some way. And I would even put virtual worlds into that because I think we learned a lot along the way. Uh, about uh, a lot of things related to, to three dimensions and simulations and, uh, and it informed gaming even in some ways. And so there was a lot of good that came out of that, that work even if the original technology that took us there I don't think is going to survive. So. Uh, that's a great question. There's another one that's on this list that is similar to virtual worlds. So augmented reality has some features that that can absolutely overlap uh, with virtual worlds, although there's not the notion of an avatar or identity, and some of that stuff is not is not in here. But that has been um, on the higher ed side uh, on the list for a long, long time, and remains remains uh, on the list here in 2012 for K-12 as well. Cassie. So uh, Ruben, I don't know if I'll say his last name correctly, Puentadura. Uh -huh. gave a talk in Austin that just blew me away. And it was about sort of uh, the evolution of mankind and, and uh, how old things were to us as a, as a species, starting with social um, much, much earlier than mobility, visualization, storytelling, and gaming. Um, has that talk held up for you? Have you looked at, at some of these trends through the lens of that talk? And does it, does it make sense? Was he, do you think he has on to something? You know, Ruben's one of the most brilliant people that uh, that I know, and so absolutely, I, I recommend people go to to see that video. It's on YouTube, and you can just look up Ruben's uh, name or look up uh, Six Minutes With, and a list of uh, of NMC six minute videos will come up, and Ruben's is one of them. But what what his point was is that there are. Uh, archetypal tools that humans have used forever. One of them is, is storytelling. It's a way that we capture big ideas and make sure that we preserve values and, uh, and methods and all sorts of things get embedded in the story so that they, they can be preserved and passed down through the generations. Um, and his perspective was that tools that uh, become mainstream by and large, touch these archetypes, and they solve um, 
essential needs in this essential in the sense of essential to being human sorts of needs and it's really a compelling idea and resonates uh, you know uh, around a lot of the choices that are that are on this list um, so one that uh, is is interesting in in a way like that is is game based learning. Game based learning has been something we've been following for since 2005. So for seven years we've been following game based learning, and it always seems to be just over the horizon. So much promise, so much potential, um, so many people interested in it, and such interesting real life you know practical examples of how people have used it well but it still just hasn't quite tipped and um, we talked about that in, in in the report this year but one of the reasons why we keep it in here is because of the kinds of, of uh, reasons that that Ruben talks about because games are one of those archetypes it's a way that humans learn it's a way that they become um, um, expert at things they get to practice, and so uh, it's a fairly interesting one. Personal learning environments has taken a very interesting turn this year. Uh, we've been following that one for a number of years as well, and for the first few years, in fact, one year we had to to uh, advise people that really there were only two papers that we could find that that were about PLEs, and there just wasn't anything else out there. Um, that was back in 2009, um, and we couldn't recommend it for inclusion in the report that year. But work has continued in developing these ideas, and it's it's a compelling set of notions that has been mixed up from time to time with other notions like learning management systems or e-portfolios, and there are groups of folks that that define PLEs uh, in terms that make them either fit very nicely with an LMS or an ePortfolio or actually be a variant of one of those. But what we began to see this year, and I think it's really an outgrowth of, of um, apps and the way that you can assemble such a personal collection of software tools in ways that you never could before because now it's very inexpensive very accessible, many of them are free, um, and people have begun thinking about a personal learning environment perhaps being your own personal collection of tools and resources that might look very much like what you have on your iPad. That's an interesting idea, and a brand new breath of, um, of air into that topic that's got a lot of people excited. So that, one's, that one has moved. Um, up in time because it's now got um, some momentum behind a way that, that people can see how to implement it. And um, so there's the list of technologies. Why don't we move on to talking about uh, trends because where we like, like to get to um, before we're done is to really talk about the really, really long-term trends. But we look at trends just as significantly as we do as with technologies. And so the trends for the coming year that were identified, there were six, actually they identified about 24, but these are the top six and they're actually in priority order. Um, and they're interesting because um, there's only a really one of them that has much to do with technology. Uh, the first one is really just an acknowledgement of how the internet and the ways we use it has really challenged us to rethink what, what an educator is and what an educator should do if you're able to go and, and find uh, all sorts of facts um, at a push of a button. What does, what does that mean for us? Well, I think we all have very substantial answers to that. Uh, but the fact that it's the number one trend, I think, is uh, is telling. 
BYOD, very much uh, a topic of conversations everywhere I go this year. And it's being driven by tablets um, as well as, um, as smartphones. And, and let's face it, economics, as schools are having uh, to make harder and harder and harder decisions, uh, some school districts, I feel pretty certain, um, you know, would have pretty close to 100 percent of the kids have a pretty nice laptop. And certainly, there are other districts where that's going to be more like 20 percent, and maybe they're not that nice. But if we could figure out where to where to put the money so that everybody had an adequate one, whether they some brought them or some of them had them subsidized, that's how those discussions are going on, um, and it's creating a lot of interesting conversations around policy as well, because mobile phones in particular have always been viewed, uh, in fact, one of the biggest challenges to mobiles has always been uh, their potential to disrupt the classroom and not in the good way. Uh, go ahead, Steve. I figured you'd just <laughs> <on> Sorry. <laughs> so uh, actually, I was going to ask a, a different question. Uh, I'm interested in the degree to which uh, it feels as though technology underlies these larger social trends, um, but is not mm -hmm. the, the core trend itself. So um, is this new? Have you been doing trends for 10 years? And have you seen a change in what you consider to be a trend? Or have your trends always been uh, sort of less technological? You know, I think they are changing. I think they're becoming less technological because um, we're we're getting to the point where the technology is becoming more and more transparent. And even as, you know, if there's interesting things that we want to think about and having a frame of augmented reality makes that possible to think about it very specifically. Um, you know, the way that, that education is changing is is not something that augmented reality is going to, to really uh, play a huge part in. It may be an interesting way that we solve some cost issues with uh, chemistry labs or physics labs or some other things. But, um, you know, it's, uh, there are other there are other pressures out in the world, and and that wasn't always the case because we it hasn't been that long ago that we didn't even have networks in schools, um, and um, you know, and so when we look back over the last ten years, there really was a lot of building out that had to be done, and so the the trends were were um, much more focused on on. Um, those sorts of things, and and now, what is interesting to me is how, um, for example, the third one there, education paradigms are shifting to include online learning, hybrid learning, and collaborative models, is as much as anything not a response. I mean, certainly that's because the technology supports it, but it's also because those are strategies that alternatives to traditional education are embracing. And um, there are some successes being being seen with some of those, and uh, so that's opening the door to to thinking about hmm, well, how might those be used here? Uh, and likewise, the last one on challenge-based active sorts of learning uh, approaches is is similar to that. That those are very much enabled by kids having 24/7 access to the internet and uh, multimedia web-enabled machines, but they, it only works when those are really more like pencils than so anything else. It seems like there's a little bit of a feedback loop here, that the technology enables the shifting of the narrative. The shifting of the narrative opens the door to using the technology. Is that, do you think that's sort of a uh, self-reinforcing feedback there? Well, I hadn't really thought about it, but um, yeah, it's certainly bound to be some of that uh, in in what's going on. Certainly, as the, you know, in the way that Doug Engelbart used to think about technology was that it uh, augmented human capability. And if we buy into that, which I I think I do, um, then it makes sense that as our capabilities increase, you know, our options increase. Um, but we keep coming back to wanting to have tools that will help us to continue to augment and expand those capabilities. So uh, certainly, as I said, 
bit of a our feedback loop in here, and uh, haven't been very good at scanning the the chat questions. And so I'm trying to bring them up as they come up. The the only one I think we missed was there was a question about differences between uh, your results based on uh, geography. Are there uh, differences oh, in the absolutely. kinds of results you see? That's one reason why we do the regional reports. Um, you know what's interesting is the big set of technologies worldwide, and I mean worldwide, even in the sense of Africa and rural India. People are looking worldwide at the same big collection of uh, possible technology choices, and you know they, there's some of them that really sound like science fiction, like wireless power um, and and other sorts of things that that we're tracking because they they have the potential to to really change things. Um, and and they're interesting. And but as we come down to what are the choices that you're going to make in the next five years, those choices are very much determined um, not so much by technology or wealth or anything like that, uh, as much as they're determined by local policies. And so, um, for example. Uh, we have some folks from Australia in the mix, and this is this is changing in Australia. But you know, for the last few years, uh, and actually, it's still true for for home internet, as I understand it. But um, you had a disincentive to use the internet. The more you used the internet, not only did you pay more, you paid by the bit. But as your usage went up, the cost per bit goes up as well. So not only becomes more expensive because you use more, but the rate at which it becomes more expensive accelerates um, in this pricing model that that uh, really discourage people from <coughs> being interested in um, in technologies that really um, require a lot of bandwidth. And so we saw things like augmented reality being less interesting in Australia simply because it's going to be too expensive uh, to implement them. Now that's changing. They have the national broadband plan that is hoping to um, do that. Um, and Stephanie asks, is that unique to Australia? No, it's not unique to Australia. Uh, it is actually a, a, a factor of how, um, how the Internet is built out in, in a particular country. Other countries like Korea, where the internet is everywhere, very fast, like you know, 50 times faster than what AT&T calls broadband. <laughs> they would, they wouldn't even, you know, I mean, if you can go to Korea and for 30 bucks a month, you're getting absolutely 50 megabits, not AT&T 50 megabits, but real 50 megabits all the time, up and down. Um, it's just a different world of what's possible to do there uh, when you compare it to other places where the average bandwidth is, is less than a megabyte. Um, your options are different. But it's not just you know the, um, what I would call predatory pricing because I have a uh, I, I think that we need to think the policy on some of the ways that we allow the telephone companies to uh, to to influence what we're able to do with the internet. That that's a different discussion. Um, but not to pick on Australia, but the, another good example in Australia was when the cloud was was really starting to take over by storm uh, in North America and Europe, and everybody was interested in looking at it. In Australia, the conversations were very different, and they were, well, wait a minute, who's who owns this data when you put it in the cloud, and and what laws apply to it? And it really became. Um, a conversation about privacy um, and and ultimately sovereignty. Who owns Australian data if we put it in a North American cloud? Uh, and people were concerned that their data would be subject to the Patriot Act and not to local Australian laws. Very valid, very practical and sensible concerns. Now, three years later, there's a very robust Australian cloud industry. And what happened was, with some government um, 
uh, impetus behind it, plus some very entrepreneurial folks down there and some people that just knew, knew how to do it. Australia now is uh, is a leader globally in providing cloud services not only for its own people, but they export uh, cloud services. And so that was a, a case where the policy arena uh, just wasn't ready for Australia to take advantage of the cloud. But as soon as they saw that, uh, now the cloud is really being used um, all over. So, go ahead, Steve. So, uh, just because I know you have to leave at the top of the hour, we've got uh, nine minutes left. Yeah, so why don't we uh, just kind of jump up into uh, the clouds and talk about what happened in uh, in Austin. We referred to it quite a few times. And I would encourage you to go and download the communique that came out of it. It will have all the detail uh, related to it. Plus, you'll be able to see uh, from this news story, which is not on the top of our page anymore, but if you look at it in the news category, uh, you'll be able to see it. And, and you can get to, to the talks that we had. But the basics of it were that we invited 100 uh, thought leaders who had been part of, a, of our expert group. Uh, there have been more than 500 people do that because we refresh them all the time. And they came from 20 countries. And they spent uh, three days first looking at uh, what we'd learned over the last 10 years and then trying to extrapolate that and take it into the next. Steve, I think you'd agree. It was an extraordinary meeting. I mean, I haven't been in a meeting where there was so much intellectual horsepower in one room. And one of the coolest things about it was that we had libraries, K-12, museums, and higher ed all in the same room. Um, and, you know, and just energetic and, and working. And um, what we came up with, and you can see the whole thing on this wiki, um, which is retreat.wiki.nmc.org. Retreat.wiki. .nmc.org. Hi, Larry. <laughs> it was pretty. It was a pretty great meeting, um, and the whole history of it there, and everything about it, and all of the ephemera and, and everything is in there. Uh, but what I wanted to share with you is what the two metatrends were, and, and that's what we'll close on. And uh, these are the top five. These are in priority order. Um, the world of work is increasingly global and collaborative. I know Steve would agree with this, that his and my job, we are we're working all over the place all the time. And um, and most of the people I know that, that are in working for multinational companies are, are doing the same thing. It, you can be in a work group, and you're going to have somebody from India, and somebody from China, and somebody from the UK, and somebody from South America. Yeah, all of them contributing, and you've got you know five people in five very different cultural groups represented. Um, it's an it's an interesting time. I I feel that this is a very positive trend, but it has real implications for the way we help our kids learn to work with each other. I think. Um, and then the second two are really about that work is not really bound to a place. People expect to be able to work wherever they want to whenever they want to. And increasingly, they're doing it over mobile networks. We spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, Deinstitutionalization. Yeah, it's on the larger list. And, um, and I think that it's kind of a thread that's weaving through here. Um, and part of it is, is this notion of openness. And one thing that came out of this very powerfully for me was that you know I've been thinking about open content, open data, open educational resources. All of those terms have been in the stew for a long time, but over the last uh, couple of years, it's really shifted to become merged with notions of transparency and open access to data and information. And you know, you think of the Arab Spring and and uh, some of the things that have happened over over the last uh, few months, it's it feels like it's moving more to a value for education. And if that's the case, then what? How do we plug into that? If people see that the stuff we typically have done our stock and trade with uh, can be replaced with you know good quality open content, what does that, what does that mean for us? And then 
you know, just some of the basic things that that help things work. Like uh, uh, there are reasons for there to be rules about ownership and privacy, but I think everyone would agree that um, there's a lag between what people are actually doing, and I'm not just talking about piracy, although piracy is one dimension of it, um, but I'm also talking about sharing, which is a, kind of another way to talk about the same thing, only you want to do it, you know, it's, uh, it's different. Uh, and then challenges that we see everywhere, particularly in countries like in Africa and India, uh, challenges of access and efficiency and scale uh, are really, really moving to the forefront. And, and I think a lot of people in that room would have, would agree that we're going to see some, some really remarkable innovation over the next 10 years in this dimension, but it's going to come from those parts of the world. It's not going to come from us. Um, and then the deinstitutionalization is also embedded in uh, the fourth one here, the rise in informal learning. Uh, Marcia, um, Stemple from the Institute of Museum and Library Services gave a, a wonderful talk that illustrated this so well. And she pointed out that um, we only spend 12.5% of our life in school, and that's from pre through graduate school. 12.5%. Um, the other 88.5%, we we're learning all the time, but we're learning other ways. We're learning in ways distinctly different than how we learned in school. Why do we choose those? And what could we learn from informal learning that could help make formal learning be more effective? And then also tied into that notion of deinstitutionalization is that the business models across education are shifting. Nobody really knows where textbooks are going to land, uh, but publishers are sure you're uh, interested in that conversation, I guarantee you. And they're working very, very hard. They know their landscape is shifting, and they're really working hard to be um, on solid ground when we, when we get to the end. So those are the, the meta trends. I'll turn it back over to you, Steve. Thanks, you've, got, you've got two minutes of your time left. Hey, one thing that was uh, that I really thought was mm -hmm. gonna, that came out of the, uh, that retreat was this idea of pushing down the process of helping people hold local events where they would go through this material at a local level. Has that gone anywhere? Have you have you had any um, interest or um, efforts in that direction? Um, we haven't actually tracked that. I'm glad you 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 reminded me about that though because we were. We have done some things out of the NMC, but we haven't seen the kind of grassroots sorts of efforts that were being talked about that day. And I think it's just a matter of, um, of figuring out a way to revisit that conversation. And uh, some of the projects that you and I are kicking around might actually be a way to do that. I think there's a lot of opportunity there um, and a lot of um, benefit to be had for people on the ground having conversations like the one we're having today um, in schools all over. So Larry has a hard stop uh, right at the end of the hour, so I'm going to click through here. I'm going to clap. I'm hovering over the smiley face icon in the participant window, and I'm going down to the applause button. Larry, thanks so much for coming on and sharing with us. We're, we're the first to hear of those conclusions, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, I want to thank uh, thank everyone in the audience. It's uh, it's really good, and so I'm going to um, let you know that you can reach me at uh, Johnson at nmc.org if you'd like to be part of our work. Uh, you want to be one of our advisors? Let us know. We are always looking for advisors. As I said, we refresh those groups all the time, and uh, and I want to also give a big shout out to Steve and the work he's doing. Um, across the board, and as this session opened up and we just talked about all the many efforts that are going on in Classroom 2.0 in the future of education, I just 
I just think you're, you're just doing fantastic work, Stephen. Please keep it up for all of this. It's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. We're going to let you go so you're not late. Thanks, okay. everybody, for coming. Have a great night. Again, great, great appreciation to Larry for all that work at New Media Consortium and the Horizon Reports. Okay. The, take care. So if you want to save the chat, you can do so by going up to File and Save. You go to File and Save, and you can save the whiteboard or the chat. Um, you can also save those from the recording if you would like. And I'll have the recording posted later tonight or tomorrow, both in full Illuminate, sorry, Collaborate form and in MP3. Thanks, everybody. Sure appreciate you being here. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. <laughs>